So next time we'll figure out how to get Alicia and Arielle up there as well. Aaron uh, hurt his wrist recently, and so Gable was helping out there. He, he didn't mind at all. He was kind of excited to get back to do that. But that's uh, <clears throat> the Solid Bronze from Forest Lake Academy. I think they might be one of my very favorite groups, even if it wasn't for who all was in there. But uh, that was beautiful today. So glad they came to bless us with that music today. Appreciate Mr. Becker and all the good work. Rick Mann, good job today. Appreciate him doing our announcements and uh, doing such a good job with it. And Candace with the children's story. So nice to have different people participating in different parts of our service. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit now will be with us to give us minds that understand. We need to understand your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's a big day today. We're going to walk through Daniel chapter 8. And I suppose it's a, a little bit of an apology if this is the first Sabbath you've been here. Uh, you're visiting, you haven't been here for the rest of the series. Going to be a bit of a fire hose experience, but uh, drink as fast as you can. That's my advice. But uh, if you've been here through this series, we're going to build today. We're not going to be able to answer every question and we can't go over every detail, but we're going to make progress here. We're going to have to call on everything we've talked about before in order to understand. And when we are done today, there's going to be a rather interesting outcome for you. You are going to understand this prophecy better than Daniel did. Think about that. Yeah. Let's jump right in. Daniel chapter 8 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Okay, couple notes. <clears throat> I'm using the New American Standard uh, Bible today for our text on the screen. I normally use the New International Version, not because I have some particular affinity to it, but because it's the one in the pews there in front of you. So if you actually wanted to take the Bible out and follow along, you could. But today I'm using the New American Standard because, I don't know if you understand this about Bible translations, it's impossible to translate a Bible from one language to another. It's impossible to translate anything from one language to another without some degree of interpretive bias coming into the translation. Because if you speak more than one language, you know this, that there is not an exact word for every word in one language, and there isn't an exact saying for every saying, and the grammar implies things in one that doesn't in the other. So the very process of interpreting any, of, of changing one language to another is an interpretive process prone to a certain bias. And that's usually not that big of a deal because the larger points of the Bible emerge. And it's not a problem. But for a couple of reasons, I wanted particularly for today to go with what's called more of a wooden translation. What it means is it's a little more word-for-word -word attempted literal and a little less interpretive. So today I'm, I'm using the New American Standard Bible. Now, Immediately, one of the things that happens here is if you go from Daniel chapter 7 to Daniel chapter 8 in your English Bible, you don't notice anything different at all in the way it's written. However, 
If you were reading original languages, it would be a very significant transition that takes place because chapter seven was written in Aramaic, but chapter eight was written in Hebrew. They're very close languages, they're closely related, but Aramaic was the language spoke uh, more in the Assyrian and that region, whereas Hebrew was specific to Israel. Now, if you'll recall, we talked about this before at the beginning, chapter one is in Hebrew, but then chapters two through seven are in Aramaic. And I told you early on to remember, this will give us some clues in our interpretive process. And if you look at the content of these chapters, chapter two through seven, the the ones written in Aramaic are filled with stories and prophecies given in the context of the pagan kingdoms of the world at that time. So the theme of these chapters really is about kings and power. But we get to chapter eight and the language returns again to Hebrew, which gives us a hint about the context of this prophecy. We've moved out of pagan kings and power, and now we're entering a different context, which I suggest to you is the context of priests and the sanctuary. Now there's other symbolism in this chapter that will support that fact, but let's talk about some more context here. This vision comes during the reign of Belshazzar. If you recall from a few weeks ago, we talked about Belshazzar and and the fact that by the time he was co-regent, the nation of Babylon was already in decline. Nebuchadnezzar was gone and Babylon was in decline and was really no longer relevant to the rest of this story, which shows up because Babylon doesn't appear at all in this prophecy. This takes place, this, this vision that Daniel has, takes place during the time of the king who would presume to misappropriate temple items for his own use. Do you remember the banquet when we talked about this? Belshazzar had a banquet and he commanded that the, that the, uh, the bowls and the cups and so forth from the temple in Jerusalem be brought and he misappropriated them from God's intention to be vessels that were used where they drank out of them. We're going to see in this prophecy another power in this vision seek to do something similar to what Belshazzar did. Now another point to recognize here, this vision is given to Daniel. This is different than the visions in chapter 2 and chapter 4, which are given to Nebuchadnezzar. The visions in chapter 7 and 8 are given to Daniel. And what's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar gets visions in 2 and 4, and Daniel comes and interprets. Remember that? But now in 7 and 8, Daniel gets visions, and he needs someone in the vision now to interpret to him. So that's kind of an interesting change. The vision in chapter 8 is in parallel to the vision in chapter 7, only it's telling a different part of the story. We go back to Daniel 8 verse 1. It says, a vision appeared subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So what this tells you is Daniel at the beginning is saying, these two things go together. So understand, Daniel 8 cannot be interpreted without Daniel 7, which as we've said before, should not be interpreted without Daniel 2, 
which we said at the beginning, serves as the overall frame for all chronological prophecy in the Bible. And that's what the image represented. That was Daniel 2. That is the frame, the, the four kingdoms and then the mixed kingdoms. And then do you remember the stone cut without hands that crushes the image and grows to fill the earth? That's our frame. Daniel 7 fits in it and Daniel 8 fits in it. So let's go on. Verse 2. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Now, it doesn't say that Daniel was in Susa. He was probably still in Babylon. But it's very interesting that he mentions this, because Susa becomes a very prominent city in the next empire. And in fact, that's the city in which the story of Esther takes place. And in addition, that's the city where Nehemiah is serving the king when he asks permission to go back and rebuild the walls. But those are all events still in the future at the point when this vision comes. So now in this vision that we're about to consider, Daniel is going to see two beasts in succession. You remember in chapter 7, we had four beasts come after each other. This time there's just two. But these beasts are a bit different from last time. And as we go forward now, this is going to be a little test for you to see if you've been paying attention all along here. Because I believe from the clues in the text, you're going to be able to identify who these beasts represent without me telling you. So here we go. Let's see if we can do it. Daniel chapter 8 verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and looked and behold a ram which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram butting westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So, okay, we got a a picture here to illustrate this ram. We want to know who this is. We've got clues in the text. The ram has two horns. If you'll remember, horns represent power. So this is a kingdom of divided power, of two entities of power. There's also something specific said in it as well. One horn is longer... But it comes up second. It comes up later, implying that the originally lesser power would become the greater power. And then we've got geography to help us. It said the ram butted its way westward, northward, and southward. So we need something that starts to the east of that which it fights against. So, having given you these clues and remembering what we've talked about before, does anyone know what kingdom we're speaking of right now? Medo-Persia, that's exactly right. There's a lot of parallels here between this and with chapter 7, but it's different. If you remember, the Medo-Persian Empire in chapter 7 is represented by a bear. Now it's a ram. But if you also recall, chapter 7 tells us the bear was raised up on one side. Chapter 8 tells us one horn was longer. And if you also remember, chapter 7, the bear had three ribs in his mouth. Whereas in chapter 8, we're told he strikes to the west, and then to the north, and then to the south. These are clues about what nation this is. The two horns... 
is that it was a dual kingdom. It was the Medes and the Persians, two people that came together, originally dominated by the Medes, but then the Persians became more powerful. The horn grew longer that grew second. And then to become a kingdom, the Medo-Persians defeated three kingdoms. They defeated Babylon to the west. Remember what the ram did? It butted to the west. They defeated Lydia to the north and they defeated Egypt to the south. Three ribs in the mouth of the bear, west, north, and south. So I would say we can, from this description alone, very well determine that the ram in this prophecy represents the Medo-Persian empire. And it said he would become great. But there's more. Verse five, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west. Which direction? From the west, so the other way now. Over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram who had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, tons of clues here. As if timing's not enough, tons of clues. We have a goat with a conspicuous single horn coming from the west so fast that he doesn't even touch the ground and attacks this ram with rage and breaks him and knocks him to the ground and tramples him and no one could stop him. The text goes on and on about this. And then, at the very peak of his power, the horn is broken and four horns come up in its place. Now, are there any parallels here with anything we can remember out of chapter 7? Do you remember the leopard from chapter 7? The leopard that had four wings? You remember how we talked about wings signify speed? Two wings is fast, four wings is really fast. Well, what does it say about this goat? He comes from the west so fast he doesn't even touch the ground. And we also know something else about that leopard. Do you remember? How many heads did that leopard have? It had four heads, didn't it? And now we've got a single horn that breaks and how many horns come up afterward? These go together, don't they? Now you get the sense that this mighty goat that attacked with astonishing speed and shocking violence and relentless intensity. I mean, listen to this language. He rushed at him in wrath. He was enraged. He struck and shattered the horns. The ram had no strength to resist. He was hurled. He was trampled. There was none to rescue. Who is this talking about in history? Who came from the West and totally destroyed the Medo-Persian Empire? 
It was the nation of Greece. It was the Macedonian Greeks under the command of Alexander the Great. And this concept that he would come enraged with great wrath is no hyperbole at all. You see, Persia had been at war with Greece for a long time and had multiple times attempted to invade Greece. And in fact, there were a couple significant invasions. The first under the Persian king Darius, the turning point of that invasion was a rather famous Greek victory at the Battle of Marathon. You ever heard of Marathon? Anybody want to guess about how far that city is from uh, Athens? Is it 25, 26 miles? Yeah, that's where that came from. The second major invasion came under King Xerxes and probably took place concurrent with the early chapters of the book of Esther. So just to put that in time... This particular invasion resulted in the Battle of Thermopylae where King Leonidas with some 300 Spartans, you ever heard of that movie that happened not that long ago? King Leonidas and the 300 Spartans along with some others held off the entire Persian army for several days in a narrow pass before they were finally, King Leonidas and his men were all killed and captured. But all of this put a deep rage in the Greeks against the Persians. A rage that is confirmed in a written correspondence that Alexander the Great would write some 100 years later. Alexander writing to the doomed King Darius III. Alexander made his intentions clear that he was going to totally destroy the Persians who he blamed for the death of his father. But just when Alexander became great, what happened? He died. He conquered all the way to India in just a few years. But his army finally said no more. They didn't quit because they ever lost. They quit because they got so far from home. They said, why are we doing this? And Alexander went back to the city of Babylon and died a young man without an heir. And the prophecy says, at his greatest power, the horn will be broken, and in its place, four will come up. Alexander's empire was huge. It stretched from Greece all the way into modern-day India. But when he died, there was no heir, and his generals divided his empire into, anybody want to guess how many parts? Four parts. That's right. So even without any further evidence, history clearly reveals who the ram and who the goat are. But since, uh, but in case you're still not convinced, we have this in the text itself. Daniel chapter 8 verse 20. The ram which you saw, the angel says to him, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Alexander was powerful and won everywhere, but as soon as his empire broke down, it was never powerful like that again. So there you go. You guys are getting pretty good at this prophetic interpretation stuff, aren't you? Yeah. But now, I want us to step back for a moment and together notice something significant. The beasts in Daniel 8 are very different from the beasts in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, 
We have these same two empires, one depicted by a bear and the other by a leopard. But in eight, it's a ram and a goat. And now also recall, our language has shifted. Now we're back into Hebrew. All right. Bears and leopards are predators. Rams and goats are not. Bears and leopards are not animals that are used for sacrifices in a sanctuary service, but rams and goats are. Bears and leopards serve well to establish in our mind the context of raging nations and powerful kings who devour and destroy. But rams and goats, particularly to a Jewish mind, suggest something different and create the basic context for understanding the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. You see, chapter 7 and chapter 8 are telling the same story just from different perspectives. Daniel 7 emphasizes the story from the literal, physical perspective of the rule of pagan kings and when that rule comes to an end. And included in Daniel 7 is the rise of the little horn power, which we saw represented the church. No longer is the kingdom not of this world, but rather the church having become like the kingdoms of the world. And the prophecy speaks of when this power would be broken. Something I suggested happened in the year 1798. But to fully understand that, you should probably go back and listen to the message from two weeks ago. But now Daniel chapter 8, on the other hand, is looking at this same story, but emphasizes the same story from the same time period, only this time we look from a spiritual perspective. And we note the effect on the people when earthly spiritual authority goes wrong, as well as noting when God says that authority will come to an end. And this time, the language of the text is the language of the sanctuary service that God established in Israel. The service that points to Jesus and his sacrifice which is a point we'll get to in some detail next Sabbath when we look at Daniel chapter 9. But for today, we still have some work to do here. Let's pick up again in verse 8. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. Okay, so now we see that a new horn has arisen, one that grows exceedingly great. Now you need to know there's no small amount of academic discussion on exactly what the phrase out of one of them means, Though in truth, it matters very little because what you decide there doesn't change the end result. You see, the argument is out of one of them, is it out of one of the horns or is it out of one of the four winds of heaven? That's probably real interesting if you're a scholar. Not really important. More important is what this horn does. This new power 
does not get an independent animal described for it, but one is not essential because remember from chapter 7, we had four different beasts, but then the focus goes to the ten horns on that last beast's head and to another one that comes up in the midst. So you don't have to have your own animal to be a nation. Just being a horn is enough here. There's actually two primary schools of thought regarding this next power, but I believe there's such weakness in one of those views, and because we don't have a lot of time, I'm only going to tell you the one that I really think is true. Verse 9 indicates this horn or new power arises and grows exceedingly great. Now note the direction, towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. The beautiful land is a name for Israel. So if this power grows southeast and into that area, where does it have to start? It has to start west of there, doesn't it? Because you can't grow east from east. So it's the opposite end of where the Medo-Persian Empire starts. To me, this is the perfect description of the rise of the Roman Empire. It grew in strength to the south. Rome would first become significant in dominating Egypt. And then Rome would extend its reach across Mesopotamia. And then by the time of Jesus, who is the power in control in Judea and Galilee? It's Rome, isn't it? The beautiful land. And it is at this point we discover a difference between Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. In Daniel 7, there is a differentiation between the beast that signifies Rome as the empire and then the little horn that comes from that beast, which we said signifies the church become a kingdom of the world. But in Daniel 8, no similar distinction is made. Yet based on what is known and putting it in the frame we understand, it's clear as we read these words after verse 9, we're no longer just talking about a human kingdom. We're talking about a spiritual entity. Daniel 8 verse 9, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And it is at this point that we need to remember all we have noted so far about our context. For without our context, we'd be lost. It is clear that there is a strong, negative, spiritual component to this new power. For it begins to directly challenge the authority of God, thinking to displace what God has established for what it will establish on its own. Remember how in this vision it comes about during the reign of Belshazzar and how he was the king who, pre who presumed to misappropriate and misuse the items from the sanctuary? Well, this power described in the vision will do those same things, only worse. You see, Belshazzar acted in denial of the God of Israel. The horn seeks to take God's place and usurp the purpose 
represented by the sanctuary. Did you catch the words? The place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And for what purpose did God establish the sanctuary? Well, the sanctuary, later called the temple, was shown to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. And Moses was to build the sanctuary, and it was to be where God dwelt with his people. It served as the focus of the people's faith. And God provided through the sanctuary and through the sacrifices a symbolic representation through actions of how the sins of the people could be forgiven and how they could be made right with God again. The sanctuary was a real place, but it was a symbol of something even greater, a symbol and an illustration of what Jesus would accomplish through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So in this time, the sanctuary was the God with us, until the true Emmanuel, the true God with us, Jesus, finally appeared in flesh to forever become Emmanuel, God with us. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? Destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. He was speaking of his body. So you see, the sanctuary is all about Jesus. And when you get that, what this horn power in Daniel 8 does becomes all the more troubling. Verse 11, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. The host are the people of God. Who is the commander of the people of God? Jesus. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. This is actually kind of an interesting interpretive challenge here. What it actually says, it removed the daily from him. And really daily has a bigger meaning than just sacrifice. It means everything that the temple was about. It removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So here's the deal. This power that arises is nothing less than a direct challenge to the rights, the authority, and the purpose of Jesus himself. And I think we know that's not good, right? History definitely shows that's not good. Verse 12, and on account of transgression, the host, the people of God, will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Basically, the horn is going to treat the people of God the same way the goat treated the ram. The meaning, the truth about Jesus and his purpose and about the means of salvation will be taken away and spurious teachings will be put in its place. And the people who long to believe in God the host will be subject to this abuse as long as the horn power is allowed to continue. But Jesus will not stand by and allow his purpose to be usurped forever. The day of judgment will finally come. 
The day described in chapter 7 is the day the one like the Son of Man receives his kingdom from the Ancient of Days. But when will the judgment come? Daniel 8, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? Meaning, how long will God allow the perversion of truth and the persecution of God's people to go on? How long until judgment begins? For it is by judgment that God puts an end to the nations, right? You remember Daniel 2? The stone cut without hands that smashes the image? That's judgment. And next comes the verse that puts the advent in Adventist. Daniel eight fourteen. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. All right, you're probably more familiar with this in the King James Version, because that's what William Miller had. Here you go. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. There are many fascinating interpretive challenges regarding Daniel 8.14, a fact that contributed strongly to the interpretation William Miller would eventually conclude. And there is much that Miller got absolutely correct, but it is clear he missed on the biggest point. Jesus didn't come when Miller said he was coming. But having said that, and let this thought trouble you, Perhaps God had as much a purpose in what Miller got wrong as well as a purpose in what Miller got right. We'll talk about that again in a couple weeks. Now, if right now you're feeling a bit confused, don't feel bad. Daniel didn't get it right off either. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand, catch this, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. So according to the angel who comes to explain to Daniel what's going on, the first key to understanding Daniel 8.14 is to understand the vision pertains to the time of the end. And since it is clear that the end did not come in the days of Daniel nor in the centuries after that, it's clear that the vision is for another time. The angel further emphasizes this point. Verse 18. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, behold, 
I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. He reiterates that point. Now, there's three things I want you to note. There will be a time of indignation, says the angel, a period when a religious power will set itself in place of God to the harm of all. Second point, the end is certain because this vision speaks of the appointed time of the end. Third point, the end comes at an appointed time, meaning there is already a specific plan for when the end will be. The end is certain. The angel goes on. Verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Now, catch the timing of this next part. In the latter period of their rule, the latter period of the rule of the four kings, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. This is that other horn that's going to grow. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. This portion of the prophecy is given in poetry. And it is a lyrical description of what this horn power does during the long period of the offense until it reaches its end, just like the image in Daniel 2. And so at this point, perhaps you feel a bit like Daniel did. Verse 26, the angel was still talking. He said this, The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Again, affirming that point. And then finally, verse 27, Then I, Daniel, and this may be how you're feeling right now, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Daniel can be forgiven for not understanding because the vision wasn't given for his day. The vision was given for our day. And at its core, this vision is about Jesus. The language and the symbols are those of the sanctuary in Israel, but the sanctuary in Israel was all about Jesus. 
And this prophecy, along with history, tells us quite plainly that it isn't just the kingdoms of the world that end up setting themselves against Jesus. Sometimes the church sets itself against Jesus. Only when the church does it, it's even worse. Why? Because when the church goes wrong, it ends up in the name of Jesus teaching the opposite of what Jesus is about. This is a reality that played out clearly in church history in a macro manner. And it is a reality that continues to play out through numerous many heresies that thread their way through the various theologies of our day. And so we must always be watchful and ever aware of not just the capacity of others to become heretical persecutors, but of our own potential to persecute as well. Condition one for being an effective persecutor is being convinced you're the only one that's right. And we need to hold ourselves to this very clear standard at all times. What we do is not about us. What we do is about Jesus. That's our standard. It would be better for us to lose all that we've worked for than to see what we've worked for become about something other than Jesus and his glory. Or to paraphrase, what does it profit a church to gain the whole world, yet lose its soul? There is more to say about Daniel 8, but our time is spent today. Daniel 8 tells us that even religious humans have tried and will try to steal the kingdom from Jesus. But Daniel 8 also tells us they won't win. And at the appointed time, God will bring every work into judgment. And in that day, as we learned in Daniel 7, judgment will be given in favor of the saints. And King Jesus will come to claim his people and to claim his kingdom. It is for that day that we long. When you're an Adventist, that's just what you do. You long for the coming of the Lord. Daniel 8 promises us we are almost there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us these words for our time. We haven't had time today to completely go into why it is exactly our time, but we'll get to that. But right now, Jesus, help us realize that we're not at war with individuals or, or others in any way. We just want to see King Jesus glorified and no one else. And our commitment is to his glory. So, Lord, help us to be a church committed to Jesus, committed to his glory, 
and eagerly awaiting his return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.